chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chidgey, and this is Causality. Causality is entirely supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium support is available via Patreon, through the Apple Podcasts channel subscription, and through Spotify. Premium supporters have access to high-quality versions of episodes as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. Causality is also a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show and with the right podcast player, you can also stream Satoshis and boost with a message as you listen. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. Mindbender The West Edmonton Mall and Amusement Park is owned by the Triple Five Corporation and is located in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. It is the largest enclosed mall in North America with over 800 stores and 3.8 million square feet of floor space today and the second most visited mall in Canada. It opened in 1981 and in its second expansion phase in 1983, an amusement park called Fantasyland was added comprising of family-targeted rides. In the next expansion phase, the mall looked to add thrill rides, and Interman were engaged by the Triple Five Group to design, supply, and build several such rides, including a roller coaster that would be called the Mindbender. The ride was designed and manufactured by Schwarzkopf in Germany and was inspired and heavily based on their portable roller coaster called Dryer Looping, as in three loops. That was built in 1984 but travelled around German funfairs throughout Europe. By comparison, the Mindbender was slightly taller, has only a single lift hill, and has additional helixes at the conclusion of the ride. It is 1,280 metres, that's 4,198 feet long, 44 metres or 145 feet high, and reaches a top speed of 96 kilometres per hour, that's 60 kilometres per hour. The ride cycle takes about 1 minute and 13 seconds to complete, and the coaster has three inversions, aka loops. The ride at opening had four carriages per train. Each carriage consisted of a two-by-two-seat configuration with a common lap bar restraint for each row. In total, the coaster had a 16-person capacity per train. The Mindbender was, and at the time of recording remains, the world's tallest, longest and fastest indoor roller coaster in operation. It opened on the 20th of December 1985, less than a week before Christmas, at a total cost of $6 million Canadian dollars to construct. Let's talk about the incident. On the 13th of June 1986, an Alberta province safety inspector, Steve Millward, declared the ride safe for operation after a periodic inspection. On the evening of the 14th of June 1986, at the West Edmonton Mall's Fantasyland, now known as Galaxyland, Maintenance crews had been working on the Mindbender for approximately 30 minutes. They were trying to identify the source of a metallic rattling sound coming from one of the carriages that was audible when the ride was operating. Despite multiple dry runs with empty cars, the source was not identified and the decision to reopen the ride for passengers was made by the park staff. Yellow train number one was loaded with 16 people aboard and set off around the circuit passing through the first sections of the track and through the first two loops, without incident. The train passed through the final braking station before the run to the third loop when the bogey detached from the rear carriage. 
From that point, there was no emergency stopping method available to slow down and stop the train. It was travelling on momentum. The rear carriage began to shake from side to side as the train continued through the track. With the axle and wheel now completely gone, the underside was impacting against the track itself. The damage to the underside of the fourth carriage was such that the lap bar restraints unlocked from their secured position. Without restraints and with the continued violent shaking of the fourth carriage, its four passengers were thrown from the ride between the second and third loops. As the ride continued into its third and final loop, the drag caused by the uncontrolled rear carriage depleted the momentum of the train, stopping it partway up the lead into the third loop, with the train then rolling back downwards. The fourth carriage skewed to the left side and became jammed against a support pylon, holding the remaining three undamaged carriages in the near vertical section of the loop, though finally stopped. The passengers on the stranded train took 30 minutes to be rescued from the train. Tony Mandrusiak, 24 years old, Cindy Simmons, 21 years old, and Tony's fiance, and David Sager, 24 years old, died. Rod Chaco, 25 years old and David's friend from Fort McMurray, survived, despite being thrown from the rear carriage. After recovering, Mr. Chaco recalled, and I quote, feeling its way and grabbing onto the handle, end quote. However, despite his firm grip, he stood no chance of holding on at those speeds and those G-forces. Mr. Chaco had shattered his lower legs, crushed half his shoulder, had a punctured lung, and broke his feet, pelvis, lower back, and every rib on his left-hand side. It would ultimately take him six months to recover in hospital. Nineteen people in total were taken to the nearby Misericordia Community Hospital with injuries. The following morning, curtains were pulled across the entrances and police were stationed at the doors of the indoor amusement park to keep onlookers out of the area while the investigation began. The two-person board of inquiry selected by the Alberta Labor Minister consisted of Mr. Kenneth McKenzie, QC, and Mr. Jeffrey Kulak. Mr. Kulak was a civil engineer lecturer at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, where he had been working for over 15 years. Both Werner Stengel and Anton Schwarzkopf, from the original ride manufacturer in Germany, flew to Edmonton following the incident to inspect the ride personally. The fully detailed report, Mall Coaster Inquiry, was released in 1987 and is unfortunately only available in hard copy from a small number of local libraries in Canada and to purchase from the Alberta local government. The key points in the report, however, are well documented in multiple public locations, all linked to in the show notes. But before we talk about the findings, firstly, a brief discussion about roller coaster wheel assemblies and bogies. All modern roller coasters have the same fundamental wheel arrangement, well, steel coasters anyway. Running wheels, also called tractor wheels, these take the weight of the carriage and are the largest of the three sets. For a roller coaster whose car sit on top of the track, the running wheels sit on top of the rails in the normal passenger loading and unloading position. Upstop wheels. Also called under-friction wheels, so-called because they are under the running wheels on the opposite side of the steel tubing or rail that they're attached to. These stop the carriage from flying off the track when it experiences negative G-forces. Side friction wheels. These are placed at 90 degrees to the running and upstop wheels to ensure that those sets of wheels remain centred on the steel pipe or the rail they're attached to. The other matching set of wheels attached to the other rail on the opposite side of the car are joined by an axle, which is fixed in width to ensure the running wheels and upstop wheels remain centred 
from the other side rail or track. Each of these wheels is a paired set on each side of the axle with a leading and trailing wheel based on the direction of motion of the carriage. Hence, you have six wheels on each side in a single wheel assembly. And with a carriage with two axles, there are a total of 24 wheels holding it to the track. Now, that's a lot of wheels, but then this ensures maximum stability, safety, and effectively locks the carriage to the track, which is what you want. Normally, each carriage would have two bogies, also called trucks, in North America. However, the original design of the Mindbenders carriages only had a two-axle bogey on the leading carriage. The following three carriages in the train only had a single-axle bogey at the rear of the carriage and a connection to the rear of the car in front of it. This allowed the train to fit eight rows of seats in approximately the same physical length as a three-car, fully independent carriage configuration, where each carriage is of the same design with two axles per bogey for each. The original design also had each group of six wheels on each side of the axle connected to the axle via a vertical pivot axle before connecting to the cross axle. There's a lot of axles. This attachment required a cap plate that was retained by four hex head recessed cap bolts. Their position was directly above the axis of the rails with the cross members passing within six millimeters, that's a quarter of an inch, of the surface of the plate when the carriage was travelling around the track in some locations. Now that that's explained, let's look at what went wrong. Two months earlier, in April of 1986, the Mindbender ride had multiple passengers complain of sore necks and shoulder muscles after completing their ride. The technicians at the mall inspected the ride multiple times following these complaints but were unable to determine any specific root cause and the ride continued to operate. The investigators determined that four bolts on the left wheel assembly cap plate of the rear carriage had either worked loose or been sheared off, allowing the wheel assembly to fall off the carriage. It's likely that one initially works loose, with the additional bolts also being loose for some time, experiencing fatigue stress, and then subsequently shearing or also coming loose under the additional mechanical load after the first bolt had failed. Given the extremely small clearance in some track locations, it's likely that at least one bolt had loosened beyond the 6mm of available clearance and was eroded or sheared by the track itself. There's an interesting article about why bolts fail linked in the show notes, particularly regarding fatigue stress due to inadequate pre-loading of the bolt, in other words, a loose bolt. Correct tensioning of your bolts matters. Whilst sometimes cited as a contributing factor, it remains unclear if the low running noise tractor wheels used on the Mindbender accelerated the failure rate of the bolts in the wheel assembly. These wheels selected on the Mindbender were different from outdoor coasters made by Schwarzkopf in an attempt to reduce noise from the coaster in the enclosed space of the West Edmonton Mall. Either way though, once the left side wheel assembly had fallen off, the carriage dipped to the left, then the right assembly and axle came loose. With the carriage now only tethered to the third carriage via a single pivot point, the carriage fishtailed from side to side. The lap bar restraints had a mechanical locking mechanism that went beneath the floor of the carriage, which normally required a right operator to release at the loading and unloading station. Unfortunately, with the carriage's underside hitting each of the two rails beneath it multiple times, the lap bar mechanisms were released the lap bars sprang forward 
and the passengers could only hold on to the grab bar in front of them, which they clearly couldn't do for long. The report therefore focused on two primary causes. First, the design flaws in the carriage bogey construction, and two, a lack of proper maintenance. The West Edmonton Mall management rejected the poor maintenance accusations and claimed the incident was caused only by a poor design. So let's look at the design first. Both the wheel assembly and the single bogey design contributed to the incident. The wheel assembly first. The wheel assembly bolts were positioned in such a way that physical inspection was quite difficult. You could easily sight them from multiple inspectable angles, but physically reaching into the assembly to confirm the bolt torques required a considerable contortion for the ride maintainers. Having said that, it wasn't impossible, especially if the carriage being inspected was taken out of service first but most other coaster designs had these critical bolts in more easily accessible locations. Now talking about the bogey. Had the rear carriage shared a double bogey design like the leading car did, the rear of the carriage would not have flailed wildly out of control when the left rear wheel assembly fell apart. This would have meant undercarriage damage would have been limited to the very rear of the carriage only and would have been unlikely to have caused the lap bar mechanical interlocks to fail. Why they initially designed the trains that way is obvious enough. Three less axles means less weight, shorter carriages, leading to more people per train, leading to more people per cycle, meaning better value for money, not only in capital costs, but in ride earnings. Having said that, at the time, this style of train design wasn't especially uncommon, but it's been seen less and less in subsequent decades for these reasons. Let's talk about the maintenance piece. Interestingly, Schwarzkopf carriages like these were in use in many of their designs, most without incident. We'll get to one of those shortly, though. So if the design really was the root cause, then why weren't there dozens of incidents like this one? And the answer is simple enough, maintenance. If the ride had been maintained properly, then it would have been safe. The West Edmonton Mall Amusement Park had many, many rides from different manufacturers from around the world. Its maintenance technicians hadn't been exposed to a high-speed roller coaster in other parts of the park and had developed the habit of basic visual inspection of the carriages from operating positions since the ride opened. The more thorough procedure would be to take the carriages out of service to inspect them from every possible angle in an inspection area. The investigators discovered that the mall and their maintenance teams were provided with the ride manuals in the project handover, except They were only written in German. The sections of the Schwarzkopf Operational and Maintenance Manual of Relevance directs maintainers to perform weekly checks on all screws and bolts, including torque checks. The investigation found that one quarter of all of the axle bolts on the trains were not torqued appropriately, with some being so loose that they were nearly ready to let go in the same manner as yellow train number one, carriage fours, had in the incident. So hang on a second though, why were the manuals only in German? Seems like a strange oversight, doesn't it? Canada speaks two languages, English and French, not German. So why only German? Well, to understand that, we need to look at what was happening at Schwarzkopf at that time. The Schwarzkopf Industries Company was formed just prior to World War II by Anton Schwarzkopf Sr., and initially was focused on making trailers for the circus and travelling fairs of the time. 
1957, Schwarzkopf built their first roller coaster, a portable coaster, for the fair circuit. And with his son, also named Anton, taking over the company in 1960, they built their first steel coaster, the Wildcat. The company became an innovator for the time in roller coaster design and began selling its coasters outside Germany through a partnership with a company called Intamin. At its peak, it employed approximately 250 people, and with the addition of the talented young structural engineer, Werner Stengel, in 1964, the Schwarzkopf name was seen as a leader in roller coaster design and manufacturing around the world. However, in late 1983, the business filed for bankruptcy following a combination of events, including a large cancelled order from Venezuela, losing two other unrelated orders and the bank director in charge of their loan accounts passed away, with his replacement being somewhat less forgiving. Although Schwarzkopf briefly came out of that bankruptcy, still in control of the company via a bridging agreement, a second and final bankruptcy occurred shortly thereafter. The Schwarzkopf Industries Company was replaced by Schwarzkopf GmbH under new management with in-flight projects, including the Mindbender, handled with a heavier push to close them out. Anton Schwarzkopf Jr. was retained as a consultant when the Mindbender was physically being built in Canada by Intamin. The original contract between 555 Corporation and Schwarzkopf included a requirement for Anton Schwarzkopf Jr. personally to inspect, control and supervise the entire construction of the coaster. For mostly political reasons, following the bankruptcy, Mr. Schwarzkopf wasn't permitted to attend site. Let's talk a bit about ride inspections. Ordinarily, an independent safety inspection from a recognised organisation would be required prior to the roller coaster entering service. Whilst some handover inspections were performed, questions were raised about their true independence. For German roller coasters, it is common to utilise the German TUV organisation. And whilst this was suggested, it was not taken up by the West Edmonton Mall, possibly due to the 70000 Canadian dollar price tag at the time. There were conflicting reports that a special inspection order from the General Safety Services Division in Germany was either not provided to the Canadian constructors or was ignored by the West Edmonton Mall management team. Michael Mooney, 555's Director of Development, told the inquiry a German government inspection of the ride, and I quote, was not required because it was exported, end quote, which suggests it was provided, but it was just ignored. Either way, the inspection order was not undertaken. Whilst track and control equipment inspections aren't being considered here, the carriages themselves were checked, but only by a visual inspection. The bolts that failed could not have been checked unless you took the train out of service into an inspection area where you could get underneath and confirm bolt torques were set correctly. No explanation was given as to why this was not done. Let's talk about the aftermath. Following the incident, the Mindbender was heavily retrofitted, adding anti-rollback mechanisms, seat belts on all carriages and overhead restraints in addition to the lap bar restraints. In addition, the number of carriages in the train was reduced from four to three, with the newly added carriages mimicking the leading carriage design, which had a double axle bogey. This also allowed the rear car to be turned backwards, if so desired. The vertical pivot axle was also changed to become a fixed part of the bogey, with the retaining bolts shifted to the top of the axle at a more accessible location for inspections. The carriages were returned to Germany for the retrofit, 
with the yellow cars being repainted to different colours in an attempt to call attention to the fact that the new carriages were different from those that had received all of the publicity in the media from the incident. The ride reopened seven months later in January 1987 with significant increases to inspection requirements and durations for all carriages. Since the ride returned to service, the ride has maintained a good safety record. The original yellow train cars involved in the incidents were returned to the mall following their seizure by the government during the investigation. The carriages were briefly stored beneath the mall, but were ultimately scrapped and never retrofitted. Both Werner Stengel and Anton Schwarzkopf Jr. were not implicated in the inquest, with blame being focused on the West Edmonton Mall maintenance personnel for inadequate maintenance standards and on the ride constructors. Mr. Chaco received an undisclosed settlement from the West Edmonton Mall and has provided free tickets to mall attractions whenever he asks. Now a bit of an afterword about the Drea Looping coaster. Perhaps you could consider it the sister or parent roller coaster mentioned earlier. That's the Drea Looping portable coaster. This particular coaster operated under that name between 1984 and 1996 on the fairway circuit. The Sunway Lagoon Park in Malaysia purchased and relocated it, renaming it to the Triple Loop Coaster until 1999. In June 1999, it was purchased by Flamingoland in North Yorkshire, England, and was renamed to Magnum Force, where it ran until 2005. It was then sold to La Feria Chapultepec Magico in Mexico City, Mexico, where it ran initially as the Montana Infinitum and in 2014 was renamed again to Montana Triple Loop. They just love renaming things, don't they? Oh, and they renamed it again in 2017, calling it the Quimera. Well, that was an exciting bit of history, but there's actually a point. On the 28th of September 2019, the rear carriage of a train derailed when the ride was operating. Mexican government officials investigating the incident cited design flaws and little or no maintenance on the ride were primarily to blame. They also noted that there was an excessive amount of track wear, track support wear and carriage component wear from operating at a higher than the design rated speed for a long period of time. Five people were injured and two people died. The park closed indefinitely and the ride was once again sold. On the 24th of November 2020, the Indiana Beach Amusement and Water Park Resort in Monticello, Indiana, released a statement indicating the ride would open in the summer of 2022 after undergoing a complete refurbishment. Whilst the failure was similar in some respects to the Mindbender, the common element was improper or lacking maintenance. Clearly, though, this specific design relies more on maintenance than some other designs to ensure its safety. On a personal note, I visited the West Edmonton Mall when I was living in Alberta. It was regrettably closed when I visited, so I was unable to have a ride on it. Though at the time, I had no idea that three people had lost their lives on that coaster less than a decade earlier. In 1997, when I was there, and still today, there is no acknowledgement, no plaque, no sign, nothing that anything ever happened. And it's generally customary, respectful, perhaps, to have some acknowledgement of the lives lost when an incident like this occurs. Mr. Chaco has been petitioning the mall for decades to commemorate those lost. However, the mall have not provided anything in a public space in the years following the incident to acknowledge that it ever happened. I only found out through a work colleague when I returned to Calgary that people had died on that ride. 
So what do we learn from all this? Design for maintainability. First of all, you should design your product that requires maintenance to continue safely operating in such a way that the critical inspection points are as easily accessible as possible. It's always easier to design a fully enclosed, space-efficient, streamlined design for something. It's not always as visually appealing or as compact to have something that's easily maintainable. But if you don't make it more maintainable, it increases the chances that it will be safer for longer than if you don't. Stack the deck in your end user's favor and make it as maintainable as you can. In this case, it was easier to manufacture and assemble the bogey assembly with a cap plate originally, but it was just more difficult to maintain. And now, how about operating anything that has a bolt in it? That's a lot of things. So if you're ever operating or inspecting anything that has bolts holding it together, if you hear a rattle that wasn't there yesterday, you probably should figure out what's causing it before you use it again. Theme parks are always under pressure to get more riders through their rides to recoup the cost of the park equipment, to pay the employees their salaries, and of course, to make profit. So there's a delicate balance to be had. It begars belief that the ride maintainers didn't check how tight the bolts were, apparently ever. The report mentions and photos show that cracking of some bolts was visible on close visual inspection, which tends to suggest that the inspections being done were very cursory in nature. Not only that, though, had the staff been trained on what to even look for? Had they even attempted to translate the manual? Although it was a time before Google Translate, seriously, getting the maintenance manual translated from German to English wouldn't have cost ridiculous amounts of money. The other concern is why the maintenance crews weren't checking the talking of the bolts on the ride periodically. Even if it wasn't weekly, as per the manual, monthly would have been enough to detect the problems. Did they own a torque wrench? Did they even know there were cap screws on that plate underneath? Ultimately, if you're responsible for the safety of people and maintenance is how to ensure their safety, you need to take that responsibility seriously and learn everything you can, absolutely everything you can, about how the device you're maintaining works. Because if you don't, how can you know that it's safe to operate? How can you know that you've done everything you can to keep them safe? During the inquiry, West Edmonton Mall President Eskander Gamazian stated, and I quote, In every single meeting I said, I do not want even a scratch to happen to anybody. I do not want anyone to get hurt. My own children are the biggest users of all these rides, so the safety is important for my children and the public. Everything has to be 100% safe. End quote. Well, I'm glad he wanted it to be safe. I guess that's a start. Well, just buying the safest car in the world, for example, is no guarantee that you won't be killed when you're driving it. Drive carefully, take the maintenance of that car seriously by getting brakes checked and tires replaced when they go bald, and you should be fine. If you don't take its maintenance seriously and drive carefully, then you'll still probably die no matter how safe you want that car to be. The knowledge gap of management at the mall was clearly buying a thrill ride comes with an associated non-negotiable maintenance cost to operate it safely. They didn't understand that. And when it opened, they neglected that and people died because of it. If you're enjoying Causality and you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium support is available via Patreon, 
through the Apple Podcasts channel subscription and through Spotify. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. A big thank you to all of our supporters. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, Kevin Koch, Leslie Law-Chan, Shane O'Neill, Hafthor, Jared, Bill, Joel Maher, and Katerina Will. And an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Stephen Bridal, and our gold producer, known only as R. Causality is heavily researched, and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you'll have access to episode locations, enhanced chapters, and real-time subtitles on selected episodes. And you can also stream Satoshis and Boost with a message if you like. There's details on how, along with a Boostergram leaderboard, on our website. You can follow me on the Fediverse at chidgy at engineer.space, on Twitter at John Chigi or one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>